So welcome everyone to the Arid Adjustive Society webinar series. We're kicking this off, um, getting organized to do some webinars this year in 2023, and really excited to have you all join us to discuss pharyngeal dysphagia in eosinophilic esophagitis, two very common conditions that we all take care of in our Arid Adjustive programs. But when they mix, they can be confusing, and we're going to go from very simple to very complex and talking through some cases that illustrate that, and also just hearing from some of our international and national experts on these topics within our disciplines um, to learn more about some of the content that would be relevant. So there's an announcement at the top here for those of you who may not have heard that our Air Digestive Society 11th annual meeting is occurring in Denver, Colorado, November 2nd through 4th. If you haven't registered, please do. If you need to update your Air Digestive Society membership, please do that. Um, you will make money on that if you go to the webinars and the meetings. So we'd love to have you join the team and stay involved. Uh, and this is just a generic welcome. We love working on all the things that we do and hope this session will deepen your connection to us. The panel is representing your Air Digestive Society Executive Committee today and also the remainder of our air digestive community worldwide as we work toward enlighten, further enlightening our care. So this is going to be a short introduction, then we'll go through some didactic content and case presentations and try to save about 10 minutes or so for questions at the end. If you have questions, please click on the TNA or the Q&A um, link on your Zoom webinar and type your questions in and Liz, our executive uh, manager will help to highlight those as we go. So my name is Caitlin Johnson and I serve as your current Air Digestive Society president from Seattle Children's Hospital. I'm an otolaryngologist. Uh, maybe I'll have each person introduce yourself if you don't mind, Sarah. Uh, sure. Sarah Kinder, one of the GI docs at uh, Children's mm. Hospital Colorado in Denver. I'll introduce Tassos Convorlis. He'll hopefully be joining us soon as a pulmonologist at DC Children's and our pulmonary representative on the society. Cara? Akara Larson. I'm the speech language pathologist representative on the Air Digestive Society and a speech language pathologist and director of the feeding and swallowing program and working in the Air Digestive Center at Boston Children's. Great. Clara? 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 Claire? Hi, I'm Claire. I'm one of the physician assistants at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, and I'm on our Air Digestive team and I'm on the Air Digestive Society. Christopher? Yeah, hey, Christopher Wooten. I am, I think, a member at large of the executive committee. I'm the chief of pediatric otolaryngology at uh, Vanderbilt and uh, I guess uh, founder of this society. I've been here a long time. Congrats. <laughs> and Amy? Hi, I'm Amy Wren. I'm a nurse practitioner and I am the clinical coordinator for the Colorado team as, that works with Sarah. Great. So we're going to kick this off with a case, and this is going to be um, pretty straightforward, but we take care of patients all the time that have um, pharyngeal dysphagia. And this child, when they presented to our air digestive clinic, had not only had gradual worsening of pharyngeal dysphagia symptoms with some coughing and choking on thin liquid exposure, otherwise a typically developing healthy three-year-old, but also had atopic dermatitis. And that raises the red flags for a lot of our GI colleagues and the rest of us at this point as well. 
but um, we first bring these children to light, just understanding their swallowing function. And we're going to hear more about that from Cara in a few minutes, but just wanted to start out with how these kids enter our program. So we often get what's called a video fluoroscopic swallow study or modified barium swallow study. And I'd like to ask Cara actually to describe what we see on this in these images. Sure, thank you. So we have a lateral view here, and this is a looks to me as a thin liquid bolus. So in the first image on the left, um, what stands out the most is there's a little bit of um, coating under the epiglottis. And then I think the middle picture demonstrates nicely that laryngeal penetration when the bolus enters um, on the underside of the epiglottis, but stays superior to the vocal cords. And uh, I think we all sort of struggle to some degree with laryngeal penetration in pediatrics. Is it clinically significant or not? And then I think we look at, is it shallow or deep? And is it consistent or inconsistent happening every time? And then pairing that along the child's respiratory history as well. Um, so it would definitely be identifying laryngeal penetration. And then on this last um, still film here, we also see this um, laryngeal penetration and a fairly large bolus um, as well. Um, so probably getting a little bit suspicious here for um, based on the history, what might be happening, whether there is some degree of pharyngeal involvement. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when it gets to be a wider column of penetration and getting down closer to the vocal folds, we start to worry about aspiration that the clinical concerns are obviously there in children who have recurrent respiratory illnesses as well. So this child had all of those things and we did elect to take them for a combination endoscopy, which includes a microlaryngoscopy and bronchoscopy. At our institution, we tend to include an injection augmentation, a flexible bronchoscopy by the pulmonary team, and an esophagogastroduodenoscopy, which was one of the more revealing findings for this child. Dr. Kinder, could I ask you to describe what you see on these images? Yeah, um, I was impressed we were able to see an EGD so thoroughly. That was good. <laughs> So we're looking down the esophagus here, um, probably I'm guessing proximal to mid, not exactly sure in terms of where we're at in the esophagus, but one of the things that sticks out initially is it's kind of just pale pink throughout. You're not seeing a lot of the blood vessels, um, which tells you there's just some swelling or some edema throughout the esophagus. Um, you can start to see these little white flecks probably pictured best on the right side of the screen, um, but that looks concerning for what we think about as papular exudate, which is often actually the white blood cells themselves have migrated to the surface of the esophageal epithelium, shouldn't be there. You shouldn't see that white stuff, um, but that's definitely concerning. And then the other thing that I think is pictured best on the very first picture to the left is these lines we call linear furrowing. Um, and so that often is secondary to the edema, but you get these streaks that go vertically down in parallel with the length of the esophagus that indicates swelling and is often suspicious for EOE. And that was indeed confirmed with this child um, with eosinophilic esophagitis on the biopsies that were taken during the esophagogastroduodenoscopy. Um, and that's kind of the start of the journey for a lot of these kids where they enter the program. If they get a diagnosis of EOE, we often realize that they're going to be a part of our story for quite some time and we can manage their dysphagia. This child has done well with management of EOE conservatively. Um, also had some benefit from the injection augmentation, 
and um, has made progress on pharyngeal dysphagia. And then now we're working through some sleep apnea. So all these things often tie together, but this was the start of their journey and um, rapid identification with integration of a GI colleague into our team has um, been critical in the management of a lot of these patients who require multiple endoscopies and long-term management to stay on top of their pharyngeal dysphagia. We've, we've had patients who were doing great for a long time after augmentation procedures, et cetera, and then got worse. And we were wondering if our, something had, had failed with our surgical management and nope, their EOE had just gotten worse. So that's often what we can point to when we see clinical or look for at least, and often point to when we see clinical fluctuations in patients that are getting worse over time when they seem to have been well-managed initially. So common problems, often the start of a journey, not always easy to manage, but um, often more long-term challenges. So we're going to dive a little deeper into each of these components now, and I'd like to shift to ask Dr. Carl Larson, or Carl Larson, our SLP colleague, to share her slides and move into some content on SLP with this. I'm just get myself back to the beginning here. Um, Thank you, I'm Cara Larson, a stated speech language pathologist in the Aerodigestive Center um, here in Boston. These are my disclosures. Um, and sort of, I think we're all very familiar with the definition of eosinophilic esophagitis. If we do have some SLPs on the seminar tonight, a quick review um, in, especially that the classical presentation in adults and older children is typically dysphagia and food impaction. And in younger children, an article that came out just recently um, this month by Dr. Susanna Hirsch, one of our attending physicians in gastroenterology and aerodigestive, um, is a really interesting retrospective study looking at um, in younger children under two years of age, presenting with abdominal pain, vomiting, and feeding difficulty as their main symptoms. So my role as the SLP on the aerodigestive team, of which we see many patients with suspected EOE and then typically diagnosed EOE is obviously a, an intake with the family. And one of the questions we always wanna ask is how long is the meal lasting? And we know that children with EOE tend to linger at the dinner table for a long time. Um, so I like to ask how long meals are and then get a cumulative assessment of how long families are spending throughout the day. Um, along with our dietitian, we'll review what a daily intake looks like. We do have many um, young children that are big liquid drinkers. Um, I think the liquid and the purees are very soothing, but they also have delays in terms of their texture progression. It's important to do a thorough oral examination. Again, kids with EOE tend to have over-chewing. They over-masticate their foods. Um, also important to assess for thrush if they've been on um, prolonged um, steroid use, just to make sure that that isn't causing any further discomfort, looking at their muscle tone to see if they have any um, oral motor impairments. And then we'll get to the nitty gritty in the clinic and look at their chewing skills. Again, parents will say, well, they chew and chew and chew the meat, they pocket it, and then they spit it out. I think then we know that our young patients are really smart. If something doesn't feel right, right, they start to refuse to eat. So we get a lot of those oral sensory responses gagging, difficulty going from smooth puree to lumpy puree or onto mashed foods. Um, and as um, was recently um, uh, kind of looking more at the research in terms of 
um, clinical concern for aspiration. And we're finding that in our patients with EOE when referred for video fluoroscopy or a modified barium swallow study, as we saw in that first slide today, that they have um, pharyngeal phase dysphagia, they have laryngeal penetration, and many of them have aspirations. So our goals in the Aerodigestive Center are counseling and coming up with a safe feeding plan and really thinking about, especially with EOE, I find what will work for this family in really considering the social determinants of health. If it would be an elimination diet, is that feasible for the family? Are they going to be able to buy foods that may be a bit more expensive? Um, so we do think about the cost um, if the child's doing an elimination diet or they're they going to do a combination of doing a PPI or budesonide or um, any of those treatments, those are determined by the physicians. But as a speech pathologist, I have to make sure I'm recommending, does this child need to be on thickened liquids to protect the airway? And then um, what degree of oral feeding and what would the, be the appropriate diet for them to be on um, if they're showing some delays in their oral motor skills? Um, so um, increased risk of aspiration in children with EOE. So um, Susanna Hirsch out of Children's, um, this study was published this month, um, among children who underwent baseline video fluoroscopic swallow study who had a diagnosis of EOE, 75% of those patients um, had abnormalities, including aspiration and then laryngeal penetration, which we saw um, on that first slide on a different patient. And then in a study in dysphagia out of Kellis and, and et al., um, they found that 25% of patients had impaired swallowing and increased risk of aspiration. And then those children who had earlier symptoms of EOE had a higher risk of aspiration. And that was um, a study that looked at 52 children where the mean age was nine, so they were a little bit older. Um, and they used the PD-EAT, which is a um, valid parent proxy instrument that um, the parents fill out and it get, assigns a score on the child's risk of aspiration or penetration. And this is, um, I thought, very helpful given that we're talking about pharyngeal phase dysphagia and EOE. And this was the group out of Turkey um, found that, again, their patients presented in the oral phase with ex excessive chewing. In the pharyngeal phase, they had food stuck in the throat. They took multiple swallows. And we see this when we perform video fluoroscopy that with one bolus or one bite of food, we can count sometimes up to five, seven, eight swallows per one bite. Um, increased liquid intake. Um, again, kids with EOE are great drinkers and often compensate if they feel any solid food impaction that they will drink or use utilize a liquid wash down. And again, being mindful of the coughing and choking and when we have to send for instrumental assessment. And then this was just a graph out of the Hirsch study um, that looked at the percentage of patients here with pre and post treatment for EOE um, and looking at uh, their symptoms at baseline uh, is the dark column and then the, the light gray column are their symptoms at follow-up. And again, what we see, and these are patients ages two and younger that they presented with gagging or coughing with feeding, um, coughing or wheezing, difficulty with solid food progression and vomiting. So again, um, the role of the speech pathologist is to perform the clinical feeding assessment and perform instrumental assessment, bring that information back to the team. Um, and uh, this was uh, a patient of ours with EOE 
who had aspiration of thin and mildly thick liquids. So he needed temporary nasogastric tube placement to meet his full hydration and nutritional needs. He was learning to work on biting and chewing, he was very delayed in those areas. And on his, um, here he's practicing straw cup drinking with moderately thick liquids. Um, and he was still kind of stuck on Elecare and Simply Thick from a straw cup. So we'll just take a peek at him here. He's just working on some chewing. Working on his Superman moves. Yes, yeah, exactly. So we had a lot going on here. We had nasogastric tube, we have moderately thick liquids because of aspiration, and then we have a delay um, with chewing and a delay in texture progression. So um, he had a lot going on. He was like, you know, the quintessential uh, aerodigestive patient. Um, this patient, I like to say, shows up in everybody's aerodigestive clinic, and along with the team, you know, it's this classic cough of, is this reflux, is this aspiration, could it be EOE, or is it a little bit of everything? Um, and this is a little guy who was having uh, difficulty with solids and presenting since um, birth with this really baseline, really wet cough. He's actually working on one of those, um, uh, a yogurt melt. This was a coconut milk melt because um, he was dairy free. Um, and so that's just that classic cough where we spend, you know, most of our time figuring out what is it or is it a little bit of everything. Um, and I thought I would end before I switch over to GI because um, I really love what I do. And I just, and I'm obviously a speech language pathologist and I love hearing how kids um, with EOE describe things. So just on Tuesday, um, one of my patients who came down from Maine said, um, Cara, sometimes there's a fire in my throat, um, sort of describing how um, they were having some food get stuck. We had an older child say, you know how you go down a slide on a hot day and get stuck? And I'm thinking of myself as a kid when your leg gets stuck on like that metal slide going down at the playground. And um, he said, that's what happens to my food. And um, those like excessive drinkers say, drinking makes my belly happy. Or another patient that came in said, I like chips, but I can't eat chips, but I wanna eat chips, but they get stuck. So that food impaction is real. And um, how every child describes that, um, I think sort of, you know, continues to, keep us all um, thinking as well as providing us with a, a bit of um, laughter and levity. So with that, I will um, pass things over to Dr. Kinder and GI. Thank you. Thank you, Cara. That was a great intro. And let me see if I can get my slides up here. Oh, I swear this worked a second ago. Okay. That's your slide view, not your presentation. That's what I thought. There we go. How's that? <clears throat> yep. We're good. Perfect. All right. So EOE from the GI perspective, um, I'll try and run through things here. So go through just a quick overview, case presentation, and then I'll go a little bit more in terms of history, presentation, diagnosis, treatment, and then go through a little bit more about how it relates to our arrow population. 
Um, so this is a case, we actually just saw this kid a few weeks ago. So patient MB, he's a seven-year-old male with a history of bacterial EATEF. We don't know exactly what type. He was repaired at an outside hospital, actually out of the country. He was adopted from Columbia, moved to Colorado at age two, and he's been cared for by our team ever since. He's been followed annually through our AERO program, and then a lot of subspecialist visits over telehealth in the interim. They live about eight hours away from Denver. Um, past medical surgical history, notable for the TEFEA, lots of dilations over the past few years, polydactyly that was resected, uh, testicle with an archaeopexy, and then tonsils and adenoids. Had a G-tube for about the first three years and then was G-tube plus PO for about the follow-up three years. And then over just about the past year, he's been 100% orally fed. Um, uh, our pediatricians would always like to look at their growth curve. So just to prove he was actually doing quite well. And even over the past year has had nice interval growth while being all PO fed. So the curve on the left is his weight and the curve on the right is VMI. Both I'm really happy with. Um, so getting to the data here. So his initial endoscopy showed in the distal esophagus, he had two EOs. This was on no therapy. Proximal esophagus just had one EO. He was started on low-dose PPI at that point in time. A follow-up scope in October of that same year looked great. Um, he was doing clinically well. At this point, he was really just starting on his oral journey. He still had oral pharyngeal dysphagia, so he was doing thickened liquids, doing a small amount PO, some G-tube. Um, that follow-up scope in October looked good. And then in February, he really, I think we see a lot in these kids who have EA, um, they get strictured and it's really unclear how much of their dysphagia is related to the stricture versus the underlying dysmotility, but he needed a dilation. So he came in, we did repeat biopsies. At that point on PPI, his esophagus still looked great, but he actually had some gastritis. So we increased the PPI a little bit more. And then COVID happened. So for about two years, we didn't have any endoscopic interventions. Um, and so we brought him back in July last year. He was on a PPI at that point. He needed another dilation and he had some mildly active esophagitis in the proximal aspect. So we increased his dose from 10 BID to 20 BID of his PPI with the plan to repeat scopes in about a year. He came in uh, February of this year with a meat infection. <laughs> so he was on high dose PPI at that point in time. Per weight, it was about two mg per kg per day of that PPI. He still had some patchy esophagitis in the proximal esophagus, and then that distal esophagus had gotten worse. He was up to 20 EOs with active esophagitis. So we put him on some topical steroids, and we're planning for a repeat scope in the next few months. Um, so this, I think, is a little bit different than our classic atopic patient, but certainly more of the classic kid we see within our Aero program who has this evolution of now into true EOE. Um, so the history of EOE in general, it's a relatively new diagnosis when we think about the big picture of all the things we treat in pediatric GI. It was really discovered in the mid-90s. We thought these patients, both pediatric and adult, had GERD, and we put them on PPI, and they just didn't get better. Um, and so they either had misinfundifications, they were on high-dose PPI, and nothing was making their esophagitis better. And they realized that when they put these patients on elemental diets, that's what got it better. So that was the first kind of clue to this is a little bit of a different physiology. This is not peptic related disease, but this is inflammation from something else. First consensus guidelines that we really follow from pediatric GI were published in 07. So again, this is a relatively new diagnosis, um, very evolving quickly, lots and lots of research being done. So super exciting field. Um, but the natural history is still pretty unknown. It's not like we have 50 or 100 years of data. So we think of it as naturally the natural course of the disease is kind of fibrostenotic. That chronic inflammation without treatment is going to lead to scarring or strictures. 
We don't think it's a pre-malignant condition, so not similar to GERD in that perspective. It doesn't turn into Barrett's, which then becomes pre-malignant. We just think that it leads to fibrosis and then stenosis, and then you get scars and strictures. But the next 30 years might tell us something differently, but that's what we're counseling patients on right now. Um, so EOE, the, the EOE comes from the British way of spelling esophagus, the O esophagus or EOE or EE. So you'll see it labeled in both ways in terms of the literature. We do think about it as, again, this is not a peptic-related disease. It's a chronic immune-regulated re disease. There's probably some inflammatory regulation that's happening and not happening well. The antigen tends to be food, but there's probably some overlap with aeroallergens as well. But to be clear, it's not an IgE-mediated response. Um, EOE is a clinical pathologic diagnosis. So they have to have both. We're going to have clinical symptoms, which I'll go through on the next slide. And then you have to have the pathology to support that diagnosis. So the hallmark is eosinophilic infiltration of the esophageal mucosa. The incidence rates are pretty variable. It does seem to happen more often in Western European countries, North America. Um, highest rates are in North America, so 30 to 50 patients per 100,000 in the population or up to about one in 2,000. Affects both children and adults. So the biggest symptoms are esophageal dysfunction, and they really have esophageal phase dysphagia. And they can certainly have both oral pharyngeal phase dysphagia and esophageal phase dysphagia. But from the GI perspective, the hallmark across all patients is some degree of that esophageal phase dysphagia that can present in different ways. So as Cara mentioned, it can really present differently depending on the age of the kid. It can be choking, gagging, food refusal, food impactions. It can evolve into more true, like the patient's telling you they're choking or meat impactions. Pain is the common presentation. It's not odynophagia, so not pain with swallowing per se, but kind of this generalized vague abdominal pain. They can vomit as their initial presentation, and it's not really different than a lot of other causes of vomiting, so there's nothing truly different, but that can also be just a presentation or a presenting symptom. Um, and especially in older uh, teenagers or up to adults, we get more classic reflux symptoms. So they just complain about heartburn, they complain about more of that peptic sounding disease, but they don't get better. Um, this was an older study, sounds like you guys just had a more recent one um, in Boston that looked at the same thing, but this goes through symptoms by age. Sorry, my light's on motion. There you go. <laughs> um, so this goes through the symptoms by age. So the younger the kids are, these are kids who are two, they're more likely to present with just generalized feeding dysfunction. They're hard to feed, they're picky, et cetera. A little bit older, those eight-year-olds, that's what that age the average is, they present with vomiting. As we get into more of the elementary school age, it becomes more pain. And then as we progress to our early adolescence, they have the true dysphagia with potentially even the food impactions. Um, these are questions that Carl kind of went through. Those are things we think about asking these families, and we'll go through those. Um, EOE risk factors. So male gender is a big one. There's a three-to-one predominance of males. Caucasian ethnicity is a risk factor. Atopic history, it can be either personal or family. I think a lot of times in these toddlers, they don't necessarily have enough time to develop the full atopic gamut. But if their parents have food allergies, uh, eczema, allergic rhinitis, asthma, that kind of makes you have a higher incidence of suspicion. And it's thought to be cumulative. So the more of these atopic diseases, the more likely we think about having higher risk of EOE. Um, a first degree relative diagnosed with EOE increases the likelihood that that patient is gonna have EOE by a lot. Um, and again, that probably relates to genetic factors. There's some degree of immune problems, esophageal permeability, barrier function, and then there's a lot of thought around the TH2 response in terms of that immune system. Um, other risk factors, this is a little newer, but I think this is pretty pertinent for some of our aero patients. So again, relating back to how our immune system is functioning and what sort of initial insults are happening. So C-section, preemie birth, 
antibiotic exposure during delivery or infancy, lack of breastfeeding, PPI exposure. Um, interestingly, an H. pylori infection is thought to be a little bit protective because it drives more of a Th1 response, but certainly pertinent to think about with all of our arrow kids because they have many of those risk factors. So diagnosis, as I said, it's clinical pathologic. So we have to have that histology, tissues the issue. We need endoscopic biopsies or transnasal biopsies. Right now, the esophageal strain test is still at the probably late age, late stage of the um, study, but we're really not still doing it as standard of care. So we still have to do biopsies. Um, they really should have about 15 EOs per high power field. Now, truthfully, if you have everything else and the kid has 14, I'd still call it EOE. Um, but really, the, the they have to have a cutoff somewhere. And so the consensus was 15. Um, we did show in a lot of the GI literature that the more biopsies you take, the more likely you are to find it. So the standard is really to take three biopsies from two separate areas, so distal esophagus, proximal esophagus. Normal is zero. Zero to 15 is a little bit more tricky, but once you get to 15 in two different areas, then you can have a lot of confidence in saying these kids have EOE. Um, pathologically, you'll see some of these supportive diagnoses that are listed there. Um, this is another interesting thing we just follow in our endoscopic findings. So we're looking at something called EREFs or edema rings exudate furrow stricture. I'm not gonna go through this so much. More findings. Uh, typically is something that you're really higher suspicion for EOE versus less findings. This is the criteria there I'm not going to go through. Um, so these are pictures, um, again, so this is that exudate or the papular exudate. It tends to be these little small dots that are actually just superficial uh, eosinophils that have migrated right there. Um, this is a picture of what we call rings or tracheolization. This is a little bit of a later finding. We actually don't see this as often in pediatrics. This is more longstanding EOE. Adults see it more frequently, but we can see it. But you can see these circumferential rings that are going down the esophagus and understandably why it's called tracheolization. Um, and then this picture I was trying to really show just that edema and again, that longitudinal furrowing, which represents the swelling and then um, the lack of blood vessels. You typically in a normal healthy esophagus should be able to see very prominent blood vessels throughout. So those are just some clinical pictures of what you would see in looking in the esophagus. All right, treatment. Um, interestingly, there's really only one treatment uh, for EOE right now. A lot of the things that we've been doing for years were not FDA approved. Um, so we think about the three D's, so I'll lay those out right there. So drugs, diet, and dilation. Of all the things up there, the only one that's FDA approved is the newer biologic, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, dilation, I'll go through it in another slide, but really not first-line therapy. Uh, so PPI treatment, we usually start one to two mg per keg of a PPI. If they respond, meaning you do a follow-up biopsy and that eosinophilia in the esophagus is improved, then we call it PPI-REE or PPI-responsive eosinophilia. We used to think of it as being different than EOE, and now we think it's more in the same spectrum. So it's just an EOE that responds to a PPI. Um, the nice part about PPI, it's easy to find. You can get it at a pharmacy, relatively cheap. Patients are pretty good about taking it, well-tolerated. The cons is the data is not fantastic. Um, only about 30 to 50% of the patients, depending on what study you're looking at, are gonna respond. So when I think about the converse of that, that means 50 to 70% of your kids are not gonna get better with it. But if they do get better, it's great. And I think it's an easy therapy to do. Um, so that's our PPI responsive eosinophilia. Um, Standard really for the past few years has been topical steroid therapy. Um, of the ones listed here, we're really using flova and budesonide the most frequently. 
uh, cyclosamide we're starting to use mometazone less frequently. And then there's quite a few other preparations available in Europe that we don't have yet, but I think are exciting and hopefully we'll get soon. Data for topical steroids is great. They're highly efficacious. Usually we say somewhere between 70 and 80% of patients are gonna have a response to that eosinophilia. Insurance will usually cover one. Typically they're well tolerated. The problem is compliance is not awesome for every single one of them that's available in the United States. They're BID dosing and you have to be NPO for an additional 30 minutes to make sure that uh, steroid is coating the esophagus and sitting there. And that's really hard in toddlers. So we have a lot of problems with compliance. Um, Side effects are a little bit worse than a PPI, but I think still generally very, very well tolerated. We do monitor after about a year for adrenal suppression, if there are behavioral changes, we want counsel families to watch out for thrush, things like that. Um, this could be another talk in and of itself, but the biologics, so dupilumab is super exciting, just got approved within the past year for EOE for ages 12 and up. Um, it's an anti-IL-4 and anti-IL-13. It's approved actually for younger kids for severe atopic derm, asthma, severe allergic rhinitis. Um, and then there's a lot of research being done in newer biologics. So again, a whole nother talk in and of itself, but just to know that's out there. And I think a lot more coming down the pipeline. Um, dietary therapy, again, could be a whole nother talk in and of itself. We really break it into amino acid-based diet, which is really, really hard to do from a compliance standpoint, but efficacious, targeted elimination. So those are saying, okay, we're gonna take out certain things and then empiric elimination. So those are our elimination of either four food or six food. Dietary therapy in general, it's good because there's no medication side effects. I think the hardship is it's a pretty significant change in terms of a patient's overall life experience. So it can be difficult to source the foods, can be expensive to source the foods, the compliance is really challenging. In a kid who's a picky eater who has maybe not the best BMI, it's sometimes not an ideal scenario. Um, so you just have to think about, is this the right choice for that particular patient? Um, and I should note with dietary therapy, a lot of times it involves more endoscopies. So because you're frequently taking out foods and then adding them back in one by one. Um, dilation, as I alluded to earlier, not really our standard of care, but we do do it from a symptomatic relief standpoint, but it's typically just to treat symptoms, not as an overall strategy for their EOE. Um, patients do get better. That improvement can last about a week to a year. Perforation is a risk. Um, and we really think of it as we're not treating the underlying disease. So we'd rather actually treat that. Um, EOE and arrow patients. So in our patients with esophageal atresia, they have, you know, one in five are going to develop EOE. So it's a much, much higher risk than the standard patient population. So a hundredfold higher risk for that particular population. With that previous slide, in general, not just EA patients, but our arrow kids have higher risk factors. And so it's something we need to think about from a prevalence standpoint. And EOE, we know in arrow can present with these extra GI manifestations. So they can have airway symptoms, chronic cough, refractory asthma, recurrent croup, chronic hoarse voice, dysphonia, globus sensation, subglottic stenosis, all those things should make us think at least about evaluating for EOE. 15% of patients who have EOE are actually seen initially by ENT and then they make their way to us or they come to Arrow. And so it's sometimes, you know, that big overlap there. Um, Cara, this is the study that you had quoted too, as well as Kella. So I think this was a phenomenal study that really talked about, again, like what's the interplay between these patients with oropharyngeal dysphagia and esophageal phase dysphagia related to the EOE and they're probably compounding the problem. Um, they have, you know, poor oral skills, prolonged meal times, if their EOE is not controlled, that impacts all these things upstream. So a really nice article there, but it definitely is relevant for all of our patients with dysphagia or oral pharyngeal dysphagia. Um, so in conclusion, EOE is common. 
like Cara talked about, really asking those feeding questions or screening questions about how feeding is going can tell you a lot. Uh, new treatment options are out there, especially for kids who have that more classic atopic phenotype. Management is best from a multidisciplinary approach because as we're going to hopefully be proving to you guys, it really does involve all of our subspecialties frequently. Lots of research happening about EOE in general, so it's a really exciting field. And then for our kids on topical steroids, we do screen those kids, so just to be mindful of that. That's all I got. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah, so much. That is dense content and really critical to the um, management of this condition. It really, in a lot of ways, you guys are the all-stars on the Aero team when it comes to EOE management. But we'll let Tassos, if you don't mind sharing your slides, now move into some pulmonary manifestations. Okay. Okay, thank you very much, uh, everybody. Uh, Sarah gave a great overview of uh, the esophagitis, so I'm not going to repeat uh, uh, the same things, and I'm going to move to my next slides. From the practical standpoint, um, as a pulmonologist, uh, we encounter many, many kids, especially those who come to the aerodigestive clinic with uh, history of proven or suspected uh, 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 EOE. And the question is to what extent these symptoms uh, from the esophagus can be related or attributed to uh, the respiratory symptoms and vice versa. And there is... Um, I don't think we're seeing your slides, Tassos. Oops, you don't see them? I don't think we are. If you can go share screen and... Okay, I'm so sorry about let me let me go back. Okay, this is the share screen. Do you see anything now? Yep, that's your slide view, not your presentation view, but we can see that fine. Well, let me put the presentation. Uh, how about now? That's um, it's the other screen. Okay, I'm not really sure. I'll think I'll I'll stick to the previous one. Uh, okay. I'm not really sure exactly. On my computer, it it shows fine, but sure. Um, okay. That's fine. If you end slideshow, we'll be able to see your. Okay, that work. That works great. Okay. So um, what I was saying is that uh, the, from the pulmonary standpoint, uh, kids who have uh, EOE uh, often have respiratory uh, symptoms as well. And the question is, to what extent these two uh, problems are related to each other? And there is uh, some reasonable uh, argument to be made that the two conditions are, uh, you know, related in the sense that uh, there is a lot of uh, epidemiologic data that especially conditions like asthma 
uh, is significantly more common among patients with uh, EOE and the same thing with uh, airway hyperreactivity. Uh, inhaled corticosteroids, as we heard uh, before, uh, they are the mainstay both of uh, EOE and uh, for asthma. Uh, they tend to uh, share a number of uh, mechanisms, especially they are assumed to be uh, driven by the T helper 2 responses. And they do have um, a lot of uh, common comorbidities like allergic rhinitis, G reflux, and uh, atopic uh, dermatitis. Uh, and of course, both conditions, um, especially of course the EOE, uh, as the name indicates, is uh, uh, associated with presence of uh, eosinophils. Asthma, uh, it depends on which phenotype you are talking about, but the traditional, at least allergic asthma, is supposed to be associated also with uh, eosinophilia. The problem uh, that uh, we have with the pulmonary is to decide really uh, which mechanism exactly is this the EOE that is causing the problem or it is different uh, other conditions that are either complications or associated with uh, EOE. One of the most common ones and significant ones uh, is gastroesophageal reflux, uh, which uh, is a very common problem uh, in kids who have uh, the esophageal condition. Now, the reflux, uh, at least in our specialty, there are people who believe that it's responsible for anything bad in the world, and there are other people who think that it's uh, completely unrelated to most of the pulmonary conditions. Uh, I am somewhere in between all of these things. Uh, reflux itself uh, obviously is not something that is causing uh, lung disease. In order to cause lung disease uh, per se, uh, you need to aspirate something. So the reflux is the mechanism that facilitates the aspiration. And um, as we all know, having reflux does not automatically mean that you aspirate because all of us probably would be dead by now. So you need to have a number of different conditions. You need to have the reflux to bring whatever comes up from your stomach all the way up to your throat. And then you need to have abnormal swallowing mechanism and inability or at least defective mechanism of protecting your airways. And then, of course, anything that drips down into your airways is going to cause inflammation and potentially uh, you know, chronic disease. The other uh, pretty common, I think, mechanism is the irritation of uh, uh, the vagal uh, afferent uh, uh, nerves that align uh, underneath, uh, just underneath the esophageal mucosa. And if you have bad esophagitis for whatever reason, the moment that something else, especially anything acidic, comes through that area, you are going to irritate the uh, vagal nerve. And uh, that can cause a number of problems. It can cause bronchoconstriction. 
I don't know if um, any of you uh, has ever done the Bernstein uh, test that um, we used to put either a catheter or uh, ask the patient to drink uh, a substance uh, that was acidic, actually very diluted hydrochloric acid. And um, you do spirometry before and after, and people who were sensitive to that, you could see immediately developing bronchospasm. And the only reason for that was the irritation of the vagal nerve. So um, these are the two main mechanisms that we see. And there is always uh, the issue that uh, is documenting eosinophilia and the esophagus automatically mean that the patient has reflux and is the reflux significant enough to assume that is causing potential aspiration. Uh, the other way that uh, the esophagitis is affecting the lungs and their ways is uh, anatomical. Uh, the organs, as we see in this diagram, uh, are very tightly close to each other. So if there is a problem in one, whatever is next to it is going to suffer. And as we heard uh, in the previous talk, um, a lot of the patients who have the severe disease may develop strictures, they may develop uh, uh, fibrosis, they have uh, abnormal uh, peristalsis. So automatically, the food, uh, what Kara said in the beginning, the little guy who was saying the food, the chips are getting stuck in my throat, uh, uh, which is probably a little lower than his throat, uh, this, uh, these chips actually are going to compress the trachea uh, because the esophagus is going to be dilated and the trachea uh, is going to have uh, uh, problems. And as you can see, I mean, these are, of course, uh, this is not eosinophilic, but uh, esophagitis, but it shows very nicely, you know, how a dilated esophagus is compressing pretty much the entire tracheobronchial tree. And in the bottom left, you can see the huge esophagus and the trachea that is practically non-existent. Uh, so it's very obvious that uh, a child who has this kind of problem automatically is going to have difficulty breathing. They're going to have very bad wheezing that has nothing to do with asthma. It is purely mechanical. Now, the aspiration, the aspiration, uh, you know, as this diagram shows, is something that it's amazing that we don't aspirate all of us much more often and much more than we do because during sleep, oops, during sleep, probably we all aspirate a little. And uh, essentially, it's one path uh, shared by two very different systems. And it takes a very, very, very little uh, discoordination to aspirate. If you don't close your cords uh, very fast, you are going to have the problem. And um, the third thing that uh, I think, uh, at least in the patients that we see, uh, uh, is a very significant problem is not reflux, but it, was, it is regurgitation, especially for the kids who have the bad peristalsis. 
And um, a lot of times, actually, the GI colleagues will say, well, we did the pH probe, there is no reflux, but if the food is getting stuck midway, uh, then it's very easy for the kid, you know, to bring it up. And then even in a healthy, neurologically normal child, the airways are not equipped to deal necessarily with something that is coming unexpectedly from below because this is not a normal swallow. And so the possibility of aspiration becomes uh, very high. And um, this is a diagram uh, that shows uh, you know, a number of uh, different problems. And from the pulmonary standpoint, what it boils down is that we have inflammation, we have poor clearance of uh, secretions, we have potentially mechanical obstruction of the airways. And all of these things uh, can cause both acute problems uh, and, uh, of course, chronic problems, especially with the uh, aspiration. And that's all I'm going to say. Thank you very much, Dr. Kamborlis. We'll turn it over to Dr. Wooten, who's going to try to make up a little bit of time and save a few for questions, uh, talking about the otolaryngologic perspective. You are still muted. Yeah, there we go. Okay, sorry. It slid up to the top and I couldn't get back to the button to unmute myself. Apologize. <laughs> um, these dadgum computers. Anyway, yes, Christopher Wooten, uh, I will try to go as quickly as possible. Really talking about the otolaryngologist perspective. I think EOE, uh, as, as many have indicated now, and, and Sarah, I think, said it overtly, is an aerodigestive disorder. And so one of the things that the otolaryngologist may offer in this is really staging, right? So we think about cancer maybe as having something with a, a tumor burden, but then there's also the condition of the nodes and is there distal spread, is there metastatic disease? And we put all that together and we try to figure out, you know, what is the stage there for the patient's cancer and how uh, is this affecting their life and what is their prognosis? And so in many ways, aerodigestive programs help stage eosinophilic esophagitis and their extraesophageal manifestations. And that's one of the things that we can offer as otolaryngologists. Uh, the literature on this is pretty interesting. Around 2005, we kind of had this inflection point where uh, this disease, eosinophilic esophagitis, started to be brokered to us as otolaryngologists by otolaryngologists. But the history really goes much further back. So uh, Atwood was sort of the first group to describe this. I think this was maybe out of Nebraska, where they sort of said, there is something called GERD. We know about that. GERD has some eosinophils. That's not new information. But EOE is a different diagnosis. They have a different phenotype and a different sort of threshold for eosinophilia. And uh, you know, and that really kind of set this set this diagnosis uh, apart from GERD and, and on its way to to future fame. Subsequent publications, you know, in the late '90s, started to look at extra esophageal manifestations in children of eosinophilic esophagitis. Uh, really interesting, uh, busy airway reconstructive centers like Cincinnati started to pick up on occasional failures, whose kind of pathophysiology pointed back to this esophageal allergic condition. And there was a great case of a child who underwent an laryngotracheal reconstruction, failed with edema, re-stenosed, had to have a CTR, you know, failed with edema and sort of continued to implicate the esophagitis uh, and the demonstrable effects of high-dose steroids and kind of treating that as, as one of the main etiologic factors of that child's failure. 
And then Dana Thompson really became one of the chief ENT spokespeople for eosinophilic esophagitis as an era digestive disease after that and did a great job showing how recurrent croup or, or chronic cough or some different conditions that we think are era digestive really did have to do with EOE in certain patients. The um, manifestations were further kind of teased out in subsequent publications, just reinforcing that it tends to be a male disease. It tends to have in its more advanced stages, you know, solid food dysphagia uh, and, and some of the later manifestations, kids needing dilations and things like that in their teens, food impactions. But in reality, uh, certainly there is a younger child manifestation that's a little bit more nuanced, more refusal, more gagging, retching, vomiting related. Uh, Karen Zur's group did a great job in the in the late 2000, first decade, 2009, I think, kind of getting us to think, gosh, as ENTs, we may be the first person to see this. Are we doing enough to diagnose it? You know, and we see people come through the door who mostly needed to do station tube dysfunction related treatments or mostly had rhinitis. But if you see things like rhinitis and dysphagia, start to think about that family history, start to think about looking around for atopy, start to think about maybe getting GI involved. And interestingly, at that time as well, there's a lot of demonstration that ENTs were treating GERD themselves, and then and they kind of take GERD up through their maximal medical comfort and say, well, if I still have these symptoms, well, maybe that's EOE. Maybe they need a CGI at that point. Um, this is a really interesting uh, paper out of Pittsburgh. One of the reasons it's really interesting is because it looks like these ENTs actually did most of the esophageal biopsies and most of the esophagoscopy kind of in this program as opposed to working alongside GI. But this is one of the early papers, again, uh, after uh, Chris Hartnick's initial offering that really linked maybe failing a laryngotracheal reconstruction to concomitant eosinophilic esophagitis that was not under good control. And then uh, out of Wisconsin, uh, Bob Chun and his group wrote a paper that had actually four or five people, if you, depending on what you consider their cricoid splits, as having kind of a laryngotracheal framework surgery where EOE seemed to affect the patient's prognosis, although not universally uh, negatively. And then some of the newest publications on this, again, kind of brokered by our own otolaryngologist, uh, Suki Choi, being our representative in this group with uh, Sanjay Kumar and Sandeep Gupta, uh, are looking at, you know, more of the biochemical mechanisms. Now, we, we want to know a little bit more about how eosinophilic esophagitis works, because we have some of these biologics, uh, like dupilumab that was mentioned earlier, that actually can, can hopefully modify disease, and we can get excited about uh, looking for patients that might benefit. So what are the ENT manifestations, really kind of three main categories. You know, there's feeding problems, there's atopic problems, and there's voicing and breathing problems. And aerodigestive conditions certainly span this entire uh, spectrum. What we're going to see most commonly, kids with rhinosinusitis, kids needing ear tubes who happen to have EOE, but there's a lot of legitimate laryngeal dysfunction in there as well that we need to be very aware of as otolaryngologists. I think an interesting question is why are there ENT manifestations of EOE, because we've really demonstrated it to be an esophageal condition. And so, you know, this kind of goes back to when I started taking biopsies of kids many years ago, gosh, back in 2010 at this point, when we would kind of walk out of an aerodigestive triple endoscopy and my GI doctor had these cool, you know, um, biopsies that he took and, and maybe an impedance probe. And my pulmonologist had this BAL we could look forward to. And all I have is pictures and all I have is words to describe it. And so I started to take biopsies to try to say, well, can we say something quantifiable uh, about what I assume is inflammation. And we started to look at the kind of watershed point at the top of the arytenoid where we might have antigen exposure, both inhaled and swallowed, and see what kind of histologic findings are there. And we did find indeed that some patients did have high counts of mast cells, high counts of eosinophils, you know, lymphocytes, plasma cells, and what have you. And so some of this uh, really allowed our initial uh, description of what we call eosinophilic laryngitis, where they had both objective inflammation 
of an elevated eosinophilic count, far above a mathematical uh, normal, and also associated with a, with a disease. In this case, oftentimes concomitant EOE or a difficult passage through laryngotracheal reconstruction, we could kind of follow those biopsy results through that process and see that high eosinophil counts tend to make grafts do poorly, for example. Uh, we've also had subsequent publications on the mast cell activities as well, because those are oftentimes also orchestrating things. So EOE is obviously, uh, even in this, really just a glimmer of the complex you know, biochemical mechanisms in place. But one of the interesting things about it is uh, there's enough going on that we could start to ask the question, well, in what ways is eosinophilic laryngitis, if that's a thing, like eosinophilic esophagitis? And so we can ask that by really copying some of the nice studies that look at particular effector molecules and immunohistochemical staining and see to what extent do these show up as overexpressed, for example, in laryngies of patients with eosinophilic spectrum diseases and how uh, to what extent does it look like uh, known EOE. And so some of the barrier molecules in this unpublished study we looked at uh, Filagrin, uh, Luna was just used as a way to identify uh, eosinophils and mast cell tryptase being a kind of an important effector of the mast cell mediated actions uh, in EOE, which is not mast cells degranulating, IgE cross-linking, it's a different kind of uh, biochemical mechanism. And then of course, eotaxin-3 is a potent chemoattracted released by unhappy epithelium and kind of perpetuated by eosinophils. And so again, from these biopsies, we were able to prove, yeah, there's some there's some correlations. This is a graphic of a heat map of correlations with the dark red being highly correlative and uh, white colors being uh, non-correlative. And so what we were able to find is that people with you know, high eotaxin-3 also had this mast cell activity. They had, had high mast cell uh, tryptase expression. We found high eotaxin-3 in people with more honed eosinophils to that site. And we also found that there was a relationship between eotaxin and filagrin but uh, did not reach um, you know, the significance uh, threshold. And that probably makes sense because it's a little bit ambiguous. Early in disease, filagra may be downregulated because of barrier dysfunction. It may actually recover with treatment over time. And so in some ways, EOL looks like EOE, fine. Uh, so what do we do as an otolaryngologist? And I think kind of a few takeaways. Um, we, we need to screen for things like eczema, asthma, allergies, you know, family food history, uh, food allergy histories, things like that. In Tennessee, we have this epidemic of adults coming in kind of casually saying your grandma or, you know, great aunt sitting there in the chair. Oh, yeah, my esophagus gets stretched. And everybody in my esophagus, my, my family's esophagus gets stretched a couple of times a year. I had to have mine. To, you know, I've, I've never, of course, in my 47 years had my esophagus stretched, nor did I consider doing so. But it seems to be a thing in Tennessee, like sort of getting your tires rotated, your esophagus dilated. But that's weird, right? And so I think if you've got some of this stuff going on and people are talking about getting your esophagus stretched, I might wonder, well, well could, could EOE be involved in this family, for example? Um, I think as ENTs, we need to resist the temptation to disrupt the gut microbiome. I don't know if it was maybe Sarah's slides, but, um, you know, I used to treat a heck of a lot of GERD, you know, beating the tar out of kids with, with PPIs and uh, everybody gets antibiotics at different times. And I, and I started to become increasingly worried about what we're doing with, you know, H. pylori and some of the data that was only recently uh, disproven maybe a little bit, but a lot of association of thinking we're, we're eradicating some very important gut microbiome, and we may be promoting, therefore, EOE and, and asthma and other sort of bad phenotypes in the air digestive tract. So I'm, I'm very aware of that now, and I would recommend that we do so. Get biopsies when you're thinking about doing nuanced laryngeal operations. If you're in the middle of reconstruction in a patient with EOE and things start to come off the rails, I've seen 
uh, aeroantigen cross-reactivity affect the patient to the extent that if they were removed from that environment, the airway healed a lot better. And really just in general, we need to lower our explanation, uh, expectations to these patients for any kind of nuanced airway surgery if EOE is lurking in the background, because it's certainly nonlinear. People's compliance with their diets, with their medications may change through the long process of reconstruction and disease flare-up can be deleterious. And in particular, I would say uh, if we're considering a laryngotracheal operation, it's probably better to do a more of a mucosal sparing operation, a resection over a graft-based operation, because some of what EOE is about, and probably EOL as well, is an epithelial barrier dysfunction. If we can kind of get that respiratory epithelium and plugged in through a resection, uh, it probably is going to do better than a long, difficult process of epithelializing a graft. And here's just an example of that. This kid didn't have atypy. He had tacro-induced uh, EOE, but but, you know, several weeks after an endoscopic posterior graft placement on the left, the graft looks like the body is just sort of politely parted around it and the graft is not integrating at all. Whereas on the right, we see a successful uh, posterior graft in the context of an extended cricotracheal resection. I think the important thing there is tracheal's epithelium was pulled up over that graft. The epithelial barrier was immediately uh, re, uh, you know, reestablished at the operation. There was not time or, or not ability for that antigen to kind of get more deeply presented and form this allergic response. So I think that's all I have from an uh, otolaryngologist perspective in, in a very few seconds. I have a case. Kaylin, do we have time for the case? Well, we have this webinar until 7.30. So um, we do have one question in the chat already. Why don't I ask um, Dr. Sarah Kinder to take a look at this question, and I'll give her the first crack at it. Christopher, would you want to share your case in... If like a few short minutes, yeah, sure. Would you recommend yeah. we move straight to cases? Okay, or questions? Oh, either way, I, I can I can do it. I guess maybe a couple more questions will come up. Um, okay, right. So while, while he I, gives I, oh, yeah. this talk on this case, please, if you do have any questions, click click the Q and A button and enter those there, and then we'll dive into those right as soon as Doctor Wooten concludes his case. All right, good. So I'm going to ask people questions. Everybody, pay attention. Uh, this is the little larynx who couldn't, which I realize many of the people who are attending this are not from the United States. This is a, a popular book in the U.S., the little engine who she says, I think I can, I think I can, and eventually makes it. But um, anyway, this is a story of a larynx that did not work and continues not to work. And I'm really here to learn from the group because I think dysphagia can be very complicated. And even though this is called EOE and oropharyngeal dysphagia, I think we'll see that there's a lot of different looks to this condition as we continue to watch it evolve over time. Basically, quickly, it's a story of a kid who was transferred to my hospital day of life too, with Strider, uh, taking smaller and smaller amounts with feeds, uh, difficulty breathing with feeds, retractions. We obviously did a little bedside scope. This is the uh, ENT resident. I've highlighted in red some of the key findings. Bedside scope in this two-day-old pooling of secretions, uh, certainly laryngomalacia. Uh, recommendations way back in 2011 were, you know, flog that child with a PPI, get SLP involved, and uh, probably they can go home, right? And so uh, the next day we got a bedside SLP evaluation. And again, the highlighted uh, findings looked like the kid had a very vigorous uh, ability and they really required pacing because they would occasionally suck a little bit down and cough, had one coughing episode. And in general, as the feeding progressed, congestion, fussiness seemed to progress as well. So my question to the group, and maybe, you know, maybe Cara, maybe Sarah, you know, at this point, you got a diagnosis of laryngomalacia. This child is all of, you know, three days old. You've been on longer weekend trips and this child's been alive. How much of a differential do you 
kind of start to discuss with the family at this point, or do you just say, well, you know, it's, it's probably luring a Malaysia and this is acceptable? Um, I can pop in. I mean, I do think in a kid that young, I would probably want a little more time because I agree. I think there's so little that you expect that to get better. And I think it's a little bit of a tincture of time and as a pediatrician that generally is on your side. <laughs> so I'd probably be patient. Yeah. And I think probably feeding strategies, I think they noted, can you implement pacing? Is there any need to proceed with instrumental assessment or are they becoming more discoordinated? as the feeding goes on, are they aspirating? But like you said, they are full term. So yeah. gotta keep a close eye on them. I mean, from what we just learned from, from Sarah's slides, this is the opposite, a full term vaginal born female. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a lot of things that don't fit the, the poster child of, of EOE. And I know it's an EOE talk, but uh, it turns out the child didn't make it. So they went home for like all of, you know, 36 hours, came back, bad laryngomalacia, DSATs. We did a superglottoplasty. Interestingly, usually that works, right? So usually superglottoplasty is a fairly effective treatment for laryngomalacia, and usually the feeding follows as your suck-swallow coordination improves, so does everything else. But the child continued to have retractions, sounding more and more wet with respirations, has this kind of neck extended positioning, um, and a little bit of hoarse voice. And so uh, they're, you know, they're gaining weight, but just not, not really looking great. So, so now what? what? What do we need to do? Cara, you're, you're shaking your head. What's next? Well, because usually po status post superglottoplasty, things do get better. And so this didn't get better. The pooling of the saliva and the secretions concerns me. Even from day one, I think that really stands out when you're that young and your saliva is pooling. Yeah. Tassos? Uh, yes, I'm a little concerned about uh, uh, more abnormalities than uh, you saw at the bedside, uh, because this kid, uh, you know, usually the, if it is simple laryngomalacia, you know, you are going to have the problem uh, not with feedings, you are going to have it with crying, uh, being upset and things like this, and with feedings. But uh, I suspect that there is much more to it, and it could be anything from subglottic stenosis to some compression to a T fistula that uh, is complicating the situation and so forth. Yeah, I, I think those are all great thoughts. And, and again, at this point, I'm like, gosh, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, let me broaden our list of consultants, I start to pull the switches on the track. Let's get, you know, let's get GI, let's get speech more formally. Let's get allergy immunology, even because there's some other things, you know, eczema dad starts to talk about his food allergies and different things. So we start to ask, well, I wonder if, you know, to your point, Carl, maybe this pooling represents a sensory dysfunction, for example. And, you know, maybe the sensory dysfunction is because of all this inflammation. Well, I haven't really characterized it effectively because my superglottoplasty biopsy was very unremarkable, for example, but there's a lot more pharynx there than just those little written with nubbins that come off. So, you know, later as we go forward a little bit, um, speech pathology takes a history. Uh, you know, at this point, at 17 months, uh, he, she is really gagging with foods and seems to struggle with more solid things. It's very specific preferences with how she gets liquid presentations. Mm -hmm. uh, and she isn't feeding therapy. And so here's a VFSS from that time. And uh, I think Cara, if I'm right, I think the far left is kind of a thin and the middle yeah. is sort of a thicker. The middle looks like a puree. Mm -hmm. And the right's got a little bit of something on a small piece. More of a chewable solid, right? right. Yeah. And 
And I please feel free to comment. The, the main comment that kind of came from this is, you know, we didn't really see aspiration per se, but that solid never seems to go anywhere. They just sort of gag and push it around. And Right. Yeah. You're not seeing any residue, um, right. especially with the liquids and the purees, but right. the in, in the on the right, it's still prolonged oral phase, that sort of over-mastication. Right. Can't sort of propel it back or don't want to propel it back. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, continue that diet, continue feeding therapy, you know, a few techniques, tricks were talked about. We did get a, a GI referral. They said, well, let's just, instead of being on Zantac and a PPI, let's max out the PPI. Let's sort of do that thing and then get an impedance. And, uh, they were demonstrated have slightly borderline, you know, kind of pathologic acid reflux. I ended up going back to the operating room. The kid just wasn't getting better clinically. And, you know, this is at 18 months now, and this is a pretty inflamed, strange, lumpy, bumpy looking airway. They had this, uh, you know, really prominent arytenoids, some of this kind of hooding going into the endolarynx. Uh, the arytenoids were quite tall and quite irregular, kind of nodular. You can see some of that, you know, lymphatic uh, little uh, cobblestoning the, of the uh, lymphoid aggregates going, going down the posterior uh, wall of the trachea there. The picture in the bottom right is actually a post-cricoid venous anomaly of some sort that doesn't seem to be big enough to be impairing entry of food in the esophagus, but it's it's kind of got this weird bruise look that we'll see over and over again. And so I did a, a revision superglottoplasty, among other things. And uh, again, these biopsies really didn't show much. But, uh, you know, having seen that, what what do we think now? Are we, are we, is this starting to ring any bells or are we still just kind of confused? I'm confused. <laughs> Tassos, you see all that stuff in the, in the airway? Does that make you feel like when you see the trachea that looks all like that? Is that, is that okay? Well, I mean, I, I would assume that the kid is chronically aspirating. And the question is, uh, where is he aspirating from? Yeah, not a normal looking larynx, um, although certainly has a very high separation between the esophagus and the airway, but uh, probably one that's pretty inflamed. So, you know, the allergist weighed in, they had weighed in earlier, and then we got more, you know, official uh, skin prick testing later, and really nothing came back, including a few food groups, although I know there's a lot of, you know, probably a whole talk on, you know, how good we are at that. Um, and and by three and a half, I just felt like once again, my my head's up against the wall. I mean, we have bad OSA. We continue to have strange feeding habits and, and concerns. Uh, we've had this eczema. We've had, you know, uh, uh, rhinitis a lot now. And, and it's just everything is starting to kind of point to a feeling of EOE. Just a little bit more for the pulmonologist. I just want to show you a graph. Uh, not that it's abnormal at all. Uh, it actually came back that the child doesn't have any kind of, you know, obstructive lung disease or any indication of asthma at that point. But the sleep study was pretty gnarly. 13.3 events per hour, which puts it in the severe category for a child and, um, and tends to avoid more solid things like breads and meats. But, you know, are we going to blame that on big tonsils? Are we going to blame that on this weird pharynx subtonsilar, the hypopharynx? Are we going to blame it on the sensory, you know, issue? Is this, is this EOE? So it's still kind of a frustrating deal. Um, so finally, I went back to the operating room, I guess now a third time and, and continue to see a very unhappy larynx very lumpy, bumpy, superglottis, uh, very cobblestone trachea, tracheolus, sidewalls going down into the lower airways. But interestingly, finally, the biopsies at least showed me something, which was a definitely elevated number of eosinophils in the airway. And so that's, you know, the upper limit of normal and a big mathematical distribution we have of over 500 biopsies is two would be the upper limit of normal. And we're sitting at five, you know, so, okay, that's a lot. 
what on earth did you do with that? You know, where, where do you pull open the, the New England Journal article on eosinophilic laryngitis and, and then figure out what to do? Because the fact is, I don't even know if this is a disease. This is just highly abnormal in a child that's highly abnormal. And I'm hanging on to anything I can. So, you know, you've heard the story. We've had the progression. If you if you change the child to, you know, a, a preterm male and made the esophageal biopsies positive, I think we would say, okay, well, this is EOE. But um, but it's not. <laughs> you know, so that's sort of where where the case has has left us, uh, you know, going forward, the kid ended up coming back several years later, and she's still having trouble and we get kind of a formal triple scope. And, you know, now she doesn't have uh, eosinophils in her larynx, but she has a bunch of mast cells. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the rest of the stuff that was pretty unremarkable. And, uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of how it ends, you know, it kind of ends like it began. What do we think this kid has? Is this is this EOE that we've been, you know, it's, it's PPI responsive. We've missed it. Is it, she's been beaten to death with Flovent and fluticasone uh, uh, nasally as well. And we're suppressing something. Is this just weird histologic laryngitis NOS? What do we think? That's the end of the story, by the way. I'm not going to ask you more questions. So you can. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, uh, the kid uh, is neurologically fine yeah okay competitive dancer athletic yeah. very winded going down the hall but but uh very neurologically normal head's been scanned for plagia cephalia early on in life never got an mri thought about it but she's she's great because hmm. you wouldn't i mean as you're saying you know that's not really a chiari presentation it's just it's such sort of an overlap and intersection of all of the work that all of us do like what came first the chicken or the egg right i mean it's an amazing trajectory and journey you've been on with her. What is the biggest <laughs> symptom that continues to bother her? Um, two things. She, you know, I, I, in the interest of time, I kind of flew through that last slide, but of a lot of people taking a history, she still has a considerable solid food dysphagia, still cuts her bites up small, still lubricates her meals considerably, mm -hmm. has epigastric pain. Sometimes that will limit her. Uh, intake, you know, so she has a phenotype that's very plausibly EOE. Um, given that her pharynx has been really, you know, uh, dispossessed of any of the large obstructors, she doesn't have big lingual tonsils, palatine tonsils are gone. I can't explain why she's cutting stuff up into tiny bites, except that she has some sort of inflammatory transit problem, potentially, you know. Um, I don't know, Sarah, is there, should, what, what else should I be studying? Have you done motility on an esophagus, like endoflip? The second I said transit, I'm like, that's the answer. We need to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if your clinical symptom is dysphagia, I think you got to just pursue that. I mean, endoflip is really helpful in that perspective to get a sense of what that motility and that esophageal wall mobility looks like. Um, so Can you describe that to the audience, the endoflip? The, the... Yeah, so it's just a really, um, it, it's done under anesthesia, so it's not an awake test. I think it's um, sort of trying to maybe be a step in between an endoscopy and an esophageal manometry study um, to really understand what the luminal pressures are. Um, and so it, it will tell you a little bit about motility, but patients are asleep. So it's not like a true swallowed motility, like you would look at with an ESMO, but it's really looking at that luminal distensibility. Is there an area of decreased pressure? What the uh, upper esophageal sphincter pressure is, what the lower esophageal sphincter pressure is. And I think what's nice about it is you can do a dilation um, at the same time. And so it, I, I think you could ask your GI colleagues to 
take a look that way. Might yeah. be a nice interval step. And you've done biopsies of the esophagus twice, correct, Chris? And were That's there correct. multiple biopsies at three, three or more levels and yeah. all that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I would continue to biopsy that child each time you get them to the OR. Because... Yeah. yeah, things evolve for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you all for your thoughts. Yeah, appreciate it. How, um, how does the patient describe the dysphagia now? Is it that she cannot swallow or it is after she swallows um she says uh she said to me it feels hard to swallow in the last six months she's had aversion to chicken and meat because she feels like those are particularly difficult to get down mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. the gi elicited a slightly different symptom where she said um that she was able to sort of say it gets stuck in at least according to the, the gastroenterologist not the upper pharyngeal region you know i don't know how good we are at finding that but certainly we're better at finding that than we are somewhere more vaguely down to the thorax so i i think there that may be there there is something to that you know kind of hypopharynx and certainly the mucosa there doesn't look normal uh and she still does complain of of shortness of breath too i didn't tell you that but but by no means is that normalized either mm -hmm. i mean the shortness of breath the pfts that you saw you know seem to be completely normal yeah. so um you know, she does not have uh, definitely by PFT at least the asthma uh, variability. If anything, as a matter of fact, if I remember the numbers, she's uh, exhaling even faster than a normal person, and that would go much more with developing fibrosis if she's actually aspirating. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, overall, it's normal. I would not expect this person to have problem. Now, if she continues to have problems with the laryngomalacia, this may be the reason uh, for, because you have a very abnormal larynx. So when she tries to take a deep breath, she may be closing even partially. So she does not have necessarily stridor, but she may feel that something is closing down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Even her ability to valve her larynx may be a little bit different. You know, she does have a little bit of hoarseness and expiratory. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And you've done two supraglottoplasties thus far. Yes. Yeah. One at seven days and one at 17 months. Yeah. Yeah. Seems and seems unlikely to be an explanation for that degree of inflammation at the larynx, though, still, if it could produce symptoms, but mm -hmm. yeah. I got to think that at some point there is going to be further definition of your underlying disease process through some form of biopsy or test, but I can't tell you what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll definitely keep you guys posted uh, as we see. Each other. That's a fascinating case. Thank you so much for sharing. I did want to um, pivot to ask Sarah Kinder to just describe some of the question that came up in your chat. And while she talks about that, in case there's anything on lymphocytic esophagitis that you want to mention to the audience. Yeah, um, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to respond gonna, live. I typed No, it, I appreciate that. I think phoning yeah. in words is great. And, and after you speak, I would like to actually ask if we could hear from either Claire or Amy with some of the take-home messages they have from their perspectives on dealing with EOE patients that come through our aerodigestive clinics, kind of tips and tricks for those in the trenches. Uh, in our programs that might be on the call to think about how we can 
most effectively interact with these complex patients and families? Um, yeah, so I wrote in the chat, you know, we don't see lymphocytic esophagitis a lot. It's a relatively rare diagnosis, truthfully. Um, and, and kind of by definition, you really shouldn't have a lot of eosinophils. It should be a predominantly lymphocytic inflammation to have it. So in the patient that does have it, I really start to think about Crohn's. So if we have the kid who comes in with dysphagia, but the biopsy show lymphocytic esophagitis, I sort of start to pursue, pursue a, an IVD workup. So calprotectin labs, inflammatory markers, a little bit of a shift in that workup. Um, and I think if you had a mixed picture, I can't say that I've even had it, but I think if you had a mixed picture where it didn't clearly meet either one, but the pathologist read it as maybe a handful of EOs and a handful of lymphocytes and you weren't really sure, I would you know, maybe get some more labs, think about things like IVD, so just get some screening stuff. I wouldn't jump straight to a colonoscopy and then repeat the endoscopy in two months on PPI and see what it evolved into. Um, but really, I, I don't, there's not a lot of literature about much of an overlap. I think they are relatively distinct entities, really just based on that pathologic diagnosis. Great. Thanks, Sarah. Um, any tips and tricks, Claire or Amy? And then Tassos, there's a question for you as well in the Q&A if you want to prepare an answer for that after they chime in. Um, I guess on, on our end, um, we at Lurie, we have our aerodigestive clinic and then we actually have a separate EOE clinic. So um, oftentimes the uh, patients get diagnosed um, during our triple scopes with our aero team. And then we usually end up sending them to that EOE clinic. It's a different um, GI physician that's in our aero clinic and then um, in the EOE clinic. But a lot of times we end up taking them back for subsequent um, MLBs and bronchoscopies and that um, EOE um, GI doctor will, will usually join us and you know do repeat biopsies and stuff. But um, yeah, a lot of our EOE patients end up in that specific clinic Then we kind of help manage um, kind of concurrently with aerodigestive needs too. Who are the members of that clinic who attends? The EOE clinic. Um, so Dr. Asgood is the um, primary gastroenterologist. Um, Dr. Alex Green is the one that's um, the air digestive gastroenterologist. Um, and then they have a nurse practitioner, I believe, in that clinic, and then a couple other support staff um, in the EOE clinic. Um, but we work pretty closely with Dr. Asgood, especially um, with bronchoscopies and those EOE patients. Okay, so the providers are GI providers. Yes, yes. In the EOE clinic, there it's strictly GI. Got it. Yep. Cool, Amy. Amy, anything else to add from your experience? Yeah, we have a similar model as Sarah could attest to in Colorado. We have a very large EOE great group that has um, GI, but also has allergy. Um, and um, we have a GI doc that used to do arrow a lot, but she's really dedicated now to EOE. Um, and we've kind of really subset it off, but we also have a very large dysphagia management group. Um, so I still end up seeing all those in our home feeding dysphagia management, but I let the GI BOE clinic manage their EOE. And how often are, is your group considering awake um, laryngoesophagoscopies for monitoring and biopsies in EOE patients versus under anesthesia for EGDs? Um, I can step in there. You're talking about the transnasal endoscopies? Yeah, transnasal. So we, we really are doing them pretty often. We'll offer it to any patient over five. Um, 
you know, certainly developmentally, there can be a big spectrum. So there can be six-year-olds who are better than the anxious 13-year-old. But if the patient's appropriate, we offer it over five. And it's an awesome option, especially if we're doing dietary therapies, because you can come in. We're doing a study. It might be done enrolling, but we were looking at if four weeks is sufficient time to see changes with um, dietary therapy. And so we come in, do a dietary change, do another scope in four weeks, and then repeat it again in four weeks. And so that's, it, it can be very frequent. It just depends on how we're managing the EOE. Um, I think the, the hard thing that we've kind of run to, and Amy and I have talked about it, is our GEDP, which is the name for our gastroesophageal disease program, that multidisciplinary clinic, and then our aero program, is the, the EOE clinic or the GEDP doesn't manage the oropharyngeal dysphagia. And so for the kids who still aspirate, we still kind of need to follow them either within arrow or just the dysphagia management team because their feeding team is really working on how is the kids maladaptive feeding handled? Like how are they doing with cutting up foods, using condiments, et cetera, but they're not managing the kid who's on a thickened liquid. Um, and their dietitians are really specialized too. So the GDP clinic, the, their dietitians are really, really super fantastic at doing these really restrictive diets. So for the kids who are on a six food elimination diet, they're the experts in that. Whereas our aero dietitians are not as comfortable walking through, how do you do a really robust and still nutritionally complete six food elimination diet? So, so often these kids are still followed in both dis multidisciplinary clinics. Um, but it also depends a little on like where they live and all these other factors. Yeah. Triaging becomes very complex in mm -hmm. each, each program, obviously. Yeah. Um, Tassos, would you like to address uh, the question? Yes. The question was uh, whether uh, asymptomatic patients with uh, EOE uh, need the pulmonary evaluation. Uh, it depends really uh, on how we define asymptomatic. Uh, if somebody has a really bad EOE from what uh, we hear that they have a lot of reflux and retching and all of these other problems, chances are that they have frequent, if not chronic cough. Uh, chances are that they have, uh, you know, some hoarseness. Uh, and uh, in this respect, you can make a case that at least an initial evaluation, you know, is not unreasonable. Uh, if they come to the aerodigestive clinic, of course, it is automatically, you know, they are going to be evaluated by the pulmonologist, whether they have symptoms or not. And uh, the follow-up, again, uh, depends really on... Uh, uh, you know, on the degree of suspicion, for example, if um, if a patient is doing really badly from the esophagitis standpoint, and if I have uh, uh, a suspicion that they do aspirate, then actually I, I do want to see them because uh, they may have silent aspiration and they don't even realize that they aspirate until it is uh, very late. So uh, the answer is, if somebody could convince me that this patient never had a respiratory problem, okay, theoretically, I don't need to see them, but it's very hard for anybody not to have any symptom at all. And especially the silent aspiration is always a possibility. Yeah. Well, that's a great answer and a great way, I think, to start to draw our 
webinar to a close. Thank you so much for joining us on our maiden voyage into webinars in 2023. And I'd like to personally thank our executive committee for stepping up and especially those of you on the panel. It's been fantastic being involved with you so far this year. And if you um, are not, uh, if you're able to spread the word, please, to all of your friends um, to come join us in Denver, Colorado, November 2nd through 4th. We're also, watch your email. We're going to be having two more webinars this year and uh, then handing off to Dr. Matt Berger and the next incoming team for next year's um, Air Digestive Executive Committee to bring us into the further into the next decade of air digestive care. Um, highlights of next year also include a field trip. We're planning to head down to Santiago, Chile for in uh, for the um, a meeting down there and uh, ongoing annual meetings as uh, announced by our Air Digestive Committee and Society. We have engaged a management company, so you're going to be getting more emails over time and more communications through that method. And we're so excited for all the things coming up ahead. So again, thank you so much for joining us and we'll sign off now. Thank you, everybody. Nice seeing you. Thank you, everybody.